Our reading today is taken from Mark chapter 2, verse 18, until chapter 3, verse 6, which can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1004. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to them, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of God. Thanks, Jennifer, reading that. Let me add my welcome to Rosie's. It's great to have you with us. And um, do keep that passage in Mark chapter 2 open as we look at that and the beginning part of chapter 3. Now, one of the things that we're frequently told today is that we're becoming more and more secular. Um, what's interesting is when you push into those kind of claims is that the growth of a so-called movement of spiritual but not religious is very prevalent. In other words, people might be turning away from so-called organized religion or the institution of religion, but actually there's a, a really um, noticeable growth in people's claim to be spiritual, even if they're not necessarily subscribing to religion. So that accounts for a fifth of people in the UK and a quarter of people in the US. And actually in the US context is the fastest growing religious group, which is interesting. A sociologist called Robert Wuthnow um, in a book called After Heaven has actually argued that this isn't really a shift away from religion, but just a shift within religion to a kind of different mode of thinking about religion. So he says a more traditional way of thinking about religion um, is habitation. Uh, thinking about, for example, the temple, a fixed dwelling place, Think about institutions and institutional religion as we sometimes talk about it. 
But then he says that there's been a switch from habitation to what he calls negotiation, which is about negotiating or realizing, understanding and recognizing the spiritual in different facets of life, even if not quite so rooted to a place, maybe more tabernacle, less temple. Um, this was brought home to me recently when I was chatting to a, a bishop who said that his son had recently gone off to become a digital nomad, and he was scratching his head a little bit to try and work out what that meant. And he asked um, Mark and I if we knew what that meant, and we said, sure, digital nomad, they're people who kind of roam the world, you know, looking for new experiences and the experience of the spiritual in the world whilst they've got their laptop to connect them into the World Wide Web. And he said, oh, you seem to understand it better than I do. And in many ways, that shows the shift, a shift from institution to more footloose and fancy-free. But it's a shift within religion. Now, the reason I mention that is that when you ask people why they're moving away from more established religion, one of the frequent things you'll get brought up is the way that religion is corrupt, um, the way that often it's a, a veil for vested power interests, the way that people will talk about the tone of the religious discourse that they don't like, often a self-righteous tone. And so when you talk to them about Jesus or try to talk to them about Jesus, people often assume that Jesus has all of those same faults and that he is basically here as a religious person, maybe some kind of religious guru, to tell people to get religion and become more serious about religion and be more religious. And yet I wonder if you notice when we had chapter 2 and chapter 3 read to us just now, as Jesus interacts with the religious authorities, that is not what is going on at all. He is reserving some of his most pointed criticisms for exactly that type of corrupt, power-mongering, self-righteous discourse that we struggle with. Because Jesus is not a person who comes and says, I am religious and I'm here to call you to be more religious, as we will see. And what we need to understand is how Jesus relates to religion. So let's look firstly, as we look at this passage and see Jesus interacting with the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the scribes of the day, how Jesus relates to religion. First thing to notice is that Jesus claims to be the true goal of religion. Jesus claims to be the true goal of religion. Look down with me at chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, it may not look like a particularly interesting question. Fasting was, uh, was a key religious manifestation and actually social event of the day, commanded in the Old Testament to be done once a year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, but also it had expanded much bigger than that. It was an expression of the Jewish nations and the Jewish people's longing for God to come in the person of their promised king, Messiah, to deliver them from the situation that they were in. And the Pharisees mandated fasting up to twice a week, and it was a common religious practice. So this is the question going on. They're saying, Jesus, your disciples don't fast, but other disciples of people like John the Baptist and our disciples of the Pharisees do fast. What's going on there? Now look at Jesus' response. Verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. Now, it's difficult because you might miss it because of the metaphor, but Jesus is making quite a claim here. Uh, if you've had a wedding day or if you've been at someone's wedding day, um, being a vicar, one of the privileges I get is to conduct the wedding ceremony, you'll know that often wedding um, marriage couples find the day a wonderful day but a slightly strange day because for that day, it's like they are the center point of all attention. 
Uh, nothing is too much trouble for anyone. Everyone wants to speak to them. They're the centerpiece of every photo. They often find that they've got sore chins and cheeks from grinning so much, and that people are trying to do things for them. And it feels like for a day they are a celebrity, and unless you are a celebrity here, you probably haven't experienced that, to have everyone orientating themselves around you for a whole day. So when Jesus says that he is the bridegroom, what he's saying is he's saying, all religious activity, if it is true, should orientate around me. I am the centerpiece. Everyone should be thinking about me. Everyone should be relating to me. And the reason people don't need to fast anymore is that I'm here. So celebrate because I'm here. Now, I don't know what you make of Jesus, but is that not incredibly egocentric? And yet the juxtaposition with Jesus is that he is so humble on one hand, he makes these claims, putting himself at the center of Old Testament and New Testament religion, saying he is the one that it's all about. And on the other hand, he's the most humble person that we've ever seen walk the earth. How do you, how do you reconcile that tension? Not only is he making the general claim that he's the center point, he's making it in a very specific context. He's referring back to Old Testament prophecies about the bridegroom of Israel. For example, Hosea chapter 2 verse 18 says this, the Lord says, in that day I will make a covenant for my people with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land, so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you, my people, to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord." Who is the bridegroom in Hosea chapter 2? No one less than God himself. God says, I will marry you, my people. A picture of intimacy with God. A picture of celebration and joy. So when Jesus says, you want to know why they're not fasting? Because the bridegroom is here. He is making a very clear claim to divinity. He's saying, I am the great bridegroom long promised. I'm here, so there's no need to fast anymore whilst I'm here with you. He is saying he is the true goal of religion. Not only that, but as we move on to verses 21 and 22, he's saying that because he's what it's all about, he brings in a new religious paradigm that is a new way of relating to God. Now, I'm on thin ice here because we've got a um, sewing metaphor and a home brewing metaphor, and I do neither, and I've not tried either. I think I'd be bad at both. But either way, let me try to explain what is going on here. The patch sewn onto an old garment is basically saying, if you sew a new patch onto an old garment, then the first time you wash it, the new patch will shrink, and it will tear away from the old patch. The new wine into old wineskins, leather wineskins, new ones have uh, the possibility of expanding, but old ones have done all their expansion. So when you put new wine and it ferments and the gases come out, then it starts to stretch the wineskins, but there's no giving them, so the old ones will just burst and the wine will pour every everywhere. Either way, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, if you try to treat me according to the old ways of the Old Testament and the religious practices there, then I will burst it apart because you can't contain me. Now, he's not saying that this new paradigm is complete discontinuity with the old. He's not saying that. He's rather saying it's the fulfillment of the old. It's new in the sense of taking it in the direction it was supposed to go and realizing it and fulfilling it. That's why we're using the language of the true goal. He's not overthrowing it. He's bringing it to its climax and its culmination. He's saying, I'm what it's all about. And we get a glimpse of that because the Old Testament would say that if you want to be forgiven, you have to go to the temple. If you want to relate to God, then it's the temple it is all where it's about. And yet we've just had in chapter 2 earlier, when Jesus heals a paralytic, 
and without any reference to a temple or offering an Old Testament sacrifice, he's turned around to the paralyzed man. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. In other words, he's saying to that man, I am the temple. You can relate to God through me. I am the ultimate sacrifice for forgiveness. I bring it all. You don't need the temple anymore. I am the fulfillment of what it was all about. He's saying he is the true goal of all religion. In other words, if you want to understand Jesus, you have to ask this question. Is he the center point of your spiritual or religious life? Anything that takes you towards him is going in the right direction. Anything that diminishes him or takes you away from him is going in the wrong direction. That is the test, as he would put it. And what's interesting, as he comes on the scene and says this, is that we then get more and more opposition from the religious leaders of the day. The three sections that we're looking at from chapter 2, 18 to 3, 6, come in the part of a wider chunk of Mark's gospel where we get five interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And if we were to go back and remember from last week, then we would see how that interaction becomes more and more polarized more and more angry on the part of the religious leaders. So they start interacting with Jesus in chapter 2, verse 7, with a question. Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But then as it gets more and more difficult, their relationship and strained, look at where they end up in chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Why is that? What's going on here? Well, let's ask secondly, why is it that the religious often reject Jesus? Why is it the religious often reject Jesus? Because legalism. Legalism is why the religious reject Jesus. In this section, the reason that the religious leaders aren't accepting Jesus is because of their view of the law and how they get right with God, and it's legalism. So look at verse 24 with me. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now look for the repetition of lawful and unlawful. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And now look at chapter 3, verse 4. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Do you see the question there? The key issue is what is lawful? because what is going on here is legalism. Now, let me explain very carefully what legalism isn't and what legalism is, because I think it's often misunderstood. First of all, legalism is not saying that it is important to keep certain moral laws and certain moral commands. Our generation particularly really doesn't get this. We think that freedom is found outside of a moral framework, so we don't want commands. Don't put those commands on me. They're they're there to straitjacket me, to constrain me. Free me up from all commands. Let me live a free life and I'll be libertine and I'll have a great time. Friends, if you've ever seen a country where the rule of law has gone, that is not liberty. That is anarchy and it is terrifying. And so lives lived without any moral framework are not liberty lives. They are anarchy lives. There's chaos. There's confusion. There's no freedom there. No, having moral commands is not a bad thing. Jesus gives moral commands. He's already given a number in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he's commanded people to repent and believe the good news. It's a command, not an invitation. Chapter 1, verse 17, he's commanded people to leave everything to follow him. It's a command, not an invitation. And there'll be lots more commands that he will give and lots more commands that his apostles will give in his name. Good commands that are life-giving, that are there to flourish and to bless to be inhabited within. Freedom is found within those, not outside of those. 
That is not legalism. Equally, legalism is not being really passionate about keeping commands if God gives them. Sometimes we, we kind of give the impression that if you're really passionate to be godly and to keep God's commands, that therefore you must be legalistic. But again, that's just not what it's about at all. Jesus himself was the most passionate person for following God the Father's ways that there has ever lived, and you cannot accuse him of legalism. No, legalism is a very specific thing. Legalism means taking God's good moral law, a moral framework which was intended to give life and blessing and flourishing, and saying, I will keep it so that I can earn favor with God. By my keeping it, I put God in my debt and I make him accept me. It's a kind of divine transaction. I do this, you owe me that. And that has never been, never been the way that God wants to relate to his people. Behind me, on this green frieze behind me, we have the Ten Commandments. Do you know how they start? They do not start, if you do this, then I will love you and accept you. They start this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's redemption, that's grace, that's mercy, that's forgiveness. So now, live this way. God always says, it's never a way to get right with me by following my commands. It's always a response to what I've done for you. And when we don't get that, then we distort God's good law. Look at how distorted it has become in the minds of the Pharisees. Look down at verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So what's going on here? The Sabbath day, Saturday in Old Testament religion, the day when people were to gather at the temple or the synagogue, a day of blessing to enjoy relationship with God. One day set apart where you could rest from your labors so that you could enjoy God and worship him together with all of God's people. And so there were prohibitions on work, but come on, I mean, not in any stretch of the imagination, the disciples working, they're wandering along and they're having a little bit of an appetizer before they get to lunch by taking a few grains of wheat from the sheaths and eating them. But the Pharisees, look at them. Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Well, A, they're not. But B, do you see how twisted and distorted it's become? They're pointing the finger at other people rather than realizing the bigger picture, what it's all about. And so Jesus answers them from verse 25, and there's real genius in his answer. He says, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? And he goes on to talk about a time under Ahimelech, the high priest, in the section of 1 Samuel 21, under the high priest of um, Abiathar, where David, God's king, entered into the temple at a time when he was serving God's kingdom and fighting for God's kingdom, and he and his men were hungry. And the only food that was left was the consecrated bread that was left for the priests. And so the priest said, well, you have this bread because you're hungry. It makes sense. You're fighting for God's kingdom. This bread is about mercy and about sacrifice, and I'm seeing that in your life, so you have it. In other words, the priest sees the spirit of the law and doesn't get a wrong reading of the letter of the law. And so Jesus says, you Pharisees, you don't understand because you're blinded, you're distorted by your legalism. This is a day, Sabbath day of blessing and rest, and you're turning it into an opportunity to try to bring curse and judgment the Sabbath was supposed to be a good thing for humanity, and you're distorting it to make it a burden for humanity. Do you see how twisted it's become? And the real genius in Jesus' example is that in the situation he quotes, David is the great king of the day, 
and he is with his companions. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, don't you see, I am the true David, Messiah, and I'm with my companions, you're really missing it. Because you're so caught up in your legalism, you can't see what's right in front of your face. The king is here. I'm walking amongst you. And you miss that because you're so obsessed on justifying yourself before God. That is what legalism does. It distorts God's good law. It turns it into a curse. Sinclair Ferguson is a theologian who's written about how poisonous the root of legalism is in two distortions. First of all, it distorts God's good law. Secondly, it distorts God's good character. Listen to this quote. This is the distortion, the lie about God that has entered the bloodstream of the human race. Scratch anyone who is not a Christian, and this, whatever they may say, is their heart's disposition. The essence of legalism is rooted not merely in our view of the law as such, but in a distorted view of God as the giver of his law. In the human psyche, truth has been exchanged for the lie. God becomes a magnified policeman who gives his law only because he wants to deprive us and in particular to destroy our joy. That is the lie of legalism. Because when we say that God gives us a law which is burdensome, and hard, and destroys joy, and that's the only way that God will be pleased with us if we, by blood and sweat and tears, claw away at the law and finally climb our way up to him. Do you see what it's saying about God and his law? It's saying God is a, a killjoy. God is there for curse, not blessing. But that couldn't be further from the truth. God comes and says, I want a relationship with you. I've made you for relationship, and I give you a moral law to bring blessing into your life, and you don't have to do it to get right with me. You just have to trust me to get right with me. It's a means of grace, not a means of curse. So why are you twisting it around? Can I ask you, what's your view of God? Do you view him as like a divine headmaster, always writing on the report of your moral life, must try harder, D for effort? Do you view the law as something loathsome, that when you see an area of your life that doesn't stack up with it, you say, I don't want to keep that. No liberty will be found there. Or do you see God as a life-giving, loving, merciful, gracious God who says, my friend, I want you to flourish. And I know the way that flourishing comes about. Live my way. It's the best way. Don't believe the lies of the culture. How do you view God? Secondly, as we look at legalism, it brings curse instead of blessing and death instead of life. Look now with me at chapter 3, verse 1. This situation gets worse. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Do you see what's going on here? Here is this situation. A man in the synagogue, he's got a crippled hand, he's lost function and form in his hand, and there are the Pharisees. Do you see how they're described like predators in the undergrowth, ready to pounce on Jesus? But what's so hideous about this is this man, they don't doubt that Jesus will want to heal him. They don't doubt that Jesus can bring transformation and utter restoration in his life, that this man who's got this congenital deformity can suddenly be restored. They don't doubt that for a moment. In fact, they're playing on that. They're saying, let's look now, see if he heals them on the Sabbath. Oh, we've got him now. Do you see how distorted it is? They're supposed to be the ones to point people to God for restoration and blessing. And instead, they're wanting to use an opportunity of healing as an opportunity to condemn and bring death. It doesn't get worse than that. But of course, never think you've got Jesus cornered. 
You see what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't say, come with me, my friend, let's go out back, let's not create a stir. (laughs) No, he's magnificent. The courage, the compassion, the grace. He says, stand up. I want everyone to see this. You want to know what I'm about? Everyone you're about to see. And there in front of everyone, he says, verse 4, which is lawful? On this day of all days, this day of blessing and rest and life, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Of course, how can they answer? And then he heals the man in full view of them all. And verse 6, the Pharisees then go out and start to plot Jesus' death. Notice three things. First of all, legalism distorts your view of self. Secondly, legalism distorts your view of others. Thirdly, legalism distorts your view of God. Legalism distorts your view of self. Legalism ingrains in people this view that you can sit in judgment on God. That is what the Pharisees are doing. Is it not a tragic irony that God himself is in their midst and they are trying to judge him? And of course, as we read the text, we're seeing where the judgment really lands. The Pharisees are proud and dismissive, even of this man in their plight. Where does that come from? It comes from the root of legalism. Because legalism always says this, if I can do this law to put God in my debt, then I'm in control of God. I manipulate God. I am God. I'm better than God. I'm the judge of God. The legalist always thinks they are above everybody. And so they're looking down their nose at everybody all the time. It makes people proud and dismissive. Or the alternative is if you think I've got to keep this law to put God in your debt, then if you don't keep the law, what do you feel? Despair. Because I can never be good enough. Woe is me. Pride or despair, those great poisons of humanity, they distort the psyche of every human being because God is not there saying, relate to me on the basis of your performance. Pride, he says, my friend, you have no reason for pride. I've given you everything. Despair, he says, I love you. I will die on a cross for you. There is no despair, there's hope. I'm conscious as I'm speaking There'll be many here who fall into either of these camps and sometimes, depending on the week we're having, we wax and wane between the two. Do you see how distorted legalism makes us? Do not try to relate to God on the basis of your performance. He never intended that way. You will never understand him and love him if you try and do it that way. Legalism distorts your view of self. Secondly, legalism creates barriers and destroys community. If you look back on chapter 2, verse 16, you'll see what the Pharisees think of other people. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can hear the sneer, can't you? Legalism always means we look down on others because we have an inflated view of ourselves. We think we are worthy, and so others who don't keep the standard are unworthy, how prevalent this is in human society throughout the history and even today. From the caste system of the East to the class system of the West, from politicians proclaiming build the wall to priests proclaiming you're not welcome here. Social or religious, legalism destroys community. It rips it apart as it drives a barrier between us on the base of race, skin color, ability, Deformity, you name it, legalism has done it, tearing communities apart. And God said, I made you all, you bear my image, I love you all, I've redeemed you all if you trust in me. Where then the barriers? Come in and come together. 
a distorted view of self, a distorted view of others, and lastly, a distorted view of God. Look at the difference between chapter 2, verse 12. Look down with me, chapter 2, verse 12. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Do you see the joy? Do you see the praise? Do you see the worship? Do you see the celebration? And look at chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Two responses to two healings, the same saviour, the same life-giving God. What's the difference? The heart of those who perceive it. My friends, if you think that you will be right with God on the basis of your performance, then you will find Jesus, someone who shatters your idol. You will find him a threat. You will hate him. You will find him a threat to your very existence because he comes in and says, you cannot keep a law. You're not good enough. You fail. And you'll say, how dare you speak to me like that? The message of grace will be the most abhorrent thing to you. And yet, if you see that you can never be good enough for God, then the message of grace is the sweetest sound to your ears. It's like the most beautiful melody, and you'll just play it over and over and over again. It will warm your heart. Normally, as sure as day follows night, a heart that is cold towards Jesus is a heart that has started to relate to Jesus on the basis of legalism rather than grace. Pascal, the Christian thinker, once said in his reflections, his pensée, the Christian religion alone has been able to cure the twin vices of pride and despair, not by expelling the one through means of the other according to the wisdom of the world, but by expelling both according to the simplicity of the gospel. It makes those who tremble who it justifies and it comforts those whom it condemns. Who then can refuse to believe and adore this heavenly light? Who indeed? I wonder, do you see legalism in your heart? Well, there's hope here, because even in the midst of the legalism of the Pharisees, Jesus shows us the way he's going to restore us. Look at verse 20, just a little hint. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. He's talking here supremely about his ascension, when he goes away before he returns in his second coming, but also he's talking about the time when Jesus was torn away as he went to the cross. When he, the bridegroom, went to the one place that he had to go to win his bride, when he, the one who brings in the new festival of wine and joy and celebration, was shut out from God's presence in darkness and humiliation, when he took the curses that should be on legalism on himself so that we might know blessing, when he paid for it all so that as he was cast out, we might be welcomed in, so that the Lord can say to you, I know you have legalism in your heart. We all do. But he says, my friend, come. It's been paid for. It's been forgiven. Don't try to relate to me anymore on the basis of law. Come to me. It's all by grace. And now live for me. I wonder, are you proud? Thinking you're better than other people, feeling like God's done well to have me on his team? See Jesus dying on the cross for you. See the cost of your sin. Let it humble you. Are you in despair saying, Pete, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've done. The Lord can't possibly accept me. Look at the cross. God sent his only son to die for you because he loves you that much. Let that bring you out of the pits of your despair and raise you up with princes and kings in Jesus' kingdom. As the words of the hymn say, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, 
my richest gain, all the things that would make me proud, I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Amen. Amen. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the seeds of legalism in our hearts. We all have it. Those of us who've known and walked with Jesus for some time often slip back to it. It's the default position of every human heart. Have mercy on us, Lord God, for that. Help us to see afresh the glory and the wonder of the Lord Jesus, that as we look at him, we might see him as he really is and see ourselves as he, we really are and see others as they really are. Sinners in need of forgiveness, but the arms of forgiveness are open wide. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.